This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to uh, another episode of New Books in Military History, a channel on the New Books Network. My name is Alex Beckstrand, and I'm the host for today's discussion. Uh, I'm very delighted to be joined by Jennifer Middlestott and Mark Wilson, who are the editors of The Military and the Market. Uh, This is newly released just this fall in 2022 by the University of uh, Pennsylvania Press. Jennifer is a professor of history at Rutgers University, and Mark is a professor of history at the University of North Carolina, Charlotte. And uh, I'm very excited to have you both here for the interview. So welcome to Jennifer and Mark. Thanks Thanks for having us, Alex. You bet. Uh, So I wonder if we could just dive right in right away. uh, And for listeners who might be wondering how uh, you might define it, uh, could we just start with... Uh, how you define the market in and of itself? Let me, I'm going to start and Jennifer can jump in and correct me and add things as well. You know, I think um, one of the points of the book is to define the market pretty broadly. So often in, in the literature, people might talk about a specific defense market um, where the focus is on weapons and uh, traditional hardware contractors. But part of the point of this book is to look at a lot of different kinds of markets Um Uh, for all sorts of goods and services that the military might need. And so for the military, you know, the market is a place outside the military itself where it might go to get the goods and services it needs um, from typically from private firms. And it's going to be buying them in most cases instead of just impressing it or, or commanding it. And the market, another way in which we use the term in the book, I think, and Jennifer can talk more about this, is we're also talking about the market as kind of an idea or an ideal in American political and economic thinking. Um, And the military is 
engaged in thinking about that ideal. It's kind of like an idealized space where you get a lot of efficient outcomes because of um, competition among firms and prices set by supply and demand. Um, and part of the content of the book describes the military's kind of fascination with the market as an idea. And I'm sure we'll talk more about that later. Yeah, I think that about sums it up. The only thing I would really add to it is, you know, to Mark's point about the way that we wanted to try to define markets broadly, we were really following some of the interesting literature that has emerged in different kinds of histories that we might think of as sort of war in society. And there we found scholars working on the military as, um, you know, in its relationship to labor markets or its relationship to consumer markets. So even where we are talking about sort of more traditional economic um, markets, it's, as Mark said, well beyond just uh, production of weapons and material purchasing and acquisition of those. And following that, uh, those, those new histories has, was actually one of the really exciting and fun parts of the book. Yeah. And one other, you know, note I took was the military as well was in many ways more broadly defined than just, or maybe not defined, but, uh, investigated than, than more than just the army or the Navy um, you know, there, there's a look in one of the chapters uh, at, at the, the VA, for example. So you're sort of uh, investigating this this uh, trajectory of the military in the market, even after service is complete for, you know, uh, for, for service members as well. So I, I thought I found that interesting also. Right. I think we wanted to think about how it's not just markets that have to be broadly defined, but we kind of have to disaggregate like what the military is and really think about it in all its respects, not only all the different parts of the institution um, that, you know, range from the, the services to the to the DOD and VA, as as you said, but also um, I think to distinguishing between a focus on kind of wartime or the lead up to war and sort of think about the what books about um demobilization, what books about militarization and the kind of widespread long-term militarization of U.S. society in the 20th century can can tell us about different places and times and ways we might find military and military-related actors um, doing interesting things in the realm of the history of the market. So we wanted to kind of gather diverse definitions of both in the book. Great. And how did you both decide to pursue the topic? Was it independently done and somehow you collaborated or how, how did you both come to the topic? Well, Jennifer and I um, didn't know one another before 2015 when we got placed on the same panel at a conference out in California. Um, and we had written conference papers related to our um, the book projects we were finishing that were about, you know, kind of the military and the market after World War II, um, broadly, broadly defined. And before we were at this conference, we weren't really aware of one another's work on that, but we produced very similar papers. Um, and then, so this is 2015, so it's been a while, but uh, over the next few years, we tried to find ways to collaborate, um, co-author something. 
And um, eventually we kind of made our way towards putting together this book. But I'm going to let Jennifer continue the story because it was one of her um, teaching experiences that kind of pushed us further down the road. Yeah, that's right. Mark and I had probably been working together for about two years when I went to spend a year at the U.S. Army War College as the Harold K. Johnson Chair in Military History. And there I was encouraged by some of my colleagues um, in the Department of National Security Studies to offer uh, an elective course on the military and the market. And though I'd been researching it and talking with Mark a fair amount about it, I'd really never taught anything about it. So actually, using Mark's help and a fair amount of Mark's own published work uh, on the Civil War uh, and afterward, um, I pulled together a course and I had officers from, you know, defense acquisitions and contracts, you know, logistics, uh, a JAG officer. We, we sort of pulled all this material together about the long and diverse history of relationships between the military and the market and tried to think about what we could say about that history, but also what it might mean to military officers themselves looking for lessons from the past. And it was such a fun experience that afterward that summer, I contacted Mark. I said, hey, you know, I found so much new material and you were so crucial in doing this. Plus, we've been working together. What if we turned our joint project into a, you know, really special edited volume that would allow us to pull a bunch of these new uh, pieces of scholarship together. And he was game. So, um, so we started off on the project. Yes. And as you mentioned, um, you know, this is an edited volume. And so are, could you just briefly describe uh, some of the chapters in the book? Yeah, Alex, if you don't mind taking the time, I know we're going to talk about a few of the individual chapters later, but if I may, I'll just um, very quickly run through the nine chapters and their authors, because really the best thing about the book is the authors that Jennifer and I got a chance to um, learn from and collaborate with on the on the volume. Um, so I'll just, uh, you know, I'll be brief, but your listeners might be interested in, you know, any one of these. And I think any one of them is is worth the price of admission for the book. Um, there are nine different chapters besides the intro and conclusion that we did. Jennifer and I have our own chapter, um, which is about what we call the privatizations of the military since World War II. Um, there's a chapter by A. June Murphy on um, Cold War military housing, which I think we'll talk about later. Uh, the political scientist Dan Worles has a chapter on the evolution of the military-industrial complex in very recent times um, toward you know, a kind of bigger complex encompassing the VA and other institutions. Uh, Sarah Weichsel has a chapter on the Civil War, uh, which is kind of an ingenious one. I think we'll talk more about that later, about soldier entrepreneurs in the Civil War. Um, Kara Vuick has a chapter on the U.S. military and prostitution across the 20th century. Uh, Gretchen Hefner contributed one on the Corps of Engineers, the Army Corps of Engineers, and base building in the Cold War. Uh, Patrick Chung has one on a, a South Korean scientist, uh, Kang Ki Dong, who uh, was active in uh, semiconductor research and uh, was on kind of various sides of the U.S. military industrial complex and global military industrial complex. Tim Barker has a chapter on military Keynesianism. Uh, 
focused on the 1970s. And then Jessica Adler has a chapter, which you referenced previously, Alex, on um, Vietnam War veterans, labor markets, and veteran activism in trying to get um, the kind of assistance and benefits they deserved. So that's it. Sorry to take the time, but I, I think your listeners might be interested in one or more of those. Yeah, and I think just by you going through the chapters, it it demonstrates you know, what we talked about at the beginning, which is how broadly defined the market um, and, and the military in some instances could be. And it, uh, you know, you almost could take this topic in so many different directions uh, anywhere that that there's uh, that there's sort of something to be researched, which was which was great. Alex, if I could just jump in, I would say that, you know, you're exactly right. And listening again to that list of chapters reminds me that, you know, one of the things we tried to do because there were so many possible different directions was take a lead in kind of developing themes in the literature that was that was emerging uh, around diverse ways that the military and the market have come together um, in history. And, you know, I think that the diverse chapters nevertheless coalesce around these three themes. You know, one is the public and private theme that throughout U.S. history, the military has combined its own public function and reliance on the private sector in various ways at various times. Uh, A second is really about how you can't think about the military and the market without thinking about how gender and race um, intersect um, with military market relationships in many different capacities. Um, and we see that in the intimate story of um, Sarah Jones Weixel and the soldier entrepreneurship. We see it in the, the chapter on sex work with Kara Vuick um, and also the chapter that you just mentioned with uh, Jessica Adler and um, the kind of economic returns to military service for African-American veterans after war. World War, uh, excuse me, after Vietnam. And and then also the final theme really that we see in the chapters is that there's a real powerful global history of military market relationships in the U.S. military that um, has, there's a lot more to be done on that, but it really shows the impact, I think, of both foreign markets and the U.S. military and its expansion across the globe, particularly in the period since World War II. Yeah, and if we could dive in to talk a little bit about uh, some of the some of the content first with your collective chapter, um, can you talk about some of the historical trends of military privatizations, and you know maybe start off with what you mean by that, and then talk about the trends that you see. Sure. Well, I'm sure we'll both um, talk about this. So here we're talking about the the chapter Jennifer and I contributed, and again that actually came out of our multi-year effort to, to co-author something on this subject. What we describe in our chapter is a very long-run story of change over time, um, where the U.S. military goes from being um, one in which the military itself uh, does a lot of its own Um, production of goods and services, and it's a kind of multi-competent, big government-style military, as as we describe it, Um, 
and that military fades over time. And so part of uh, the the history that we offer in our chapter is one of a decline of that kind of big military towards one that relies more on contractors, uh, that's outsourced more of its um, activities and has shed a lot of its former capacities to a kind of leaner, more privatized military. I know your listeners are probably familiar with certain aspects of that, uh, including, you know, the security firms like Blackwater that became active uh, in recent years. But we describe a kind of very long run um, process there. Yeah, I would just jump in and add that that it's it's probably that that last point from my point of view that was a that was a jumping off point is that I sort of knew when I began thinking about these military market relationships that there was a purportedly sudden and drastic turn towards military privatization um, with the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. And there were several good works that came out in that period describing the use of private military contractors like, like Blackwater. But trying to um, look at the long roots of that and also trying to denaturalize that, that story and put it in a wider context really became the goal of our joint efforts. And one of the things that we realized was that it was not at all inevitable. And it was not at all the result of political efforts that only took place in like the early aughts, you know, in the 2000s with the war. It was a a political choice, um, a concerted political effort made by opponents of the New Deal state. So the story took us all the way back to the 30s um, and then the 1940s, where we discovered free market, free enterprise business people and their allies in Congress who were really trying to kind of use what had become a large government apparatus, both of the New Deal and World War II, as a kind of new market for themselves, where the post-war private sector was looking for new ways to expand and make profits. And they basically argued that the government should hand over some of its government functions to corporations to do that work. And so we tell the story of how that occurred, how the pressure from political lobbying um, took place. And then we kind of trace a sort of um, ultimately successful, but still uneven story about how the off, I guess we would call it the contracting out or the outsourcing and the privatization took place from, you know, weapons and materiel factories uh, through real estate um, and then eventually into military services much later. Yeah. And I was thinking a little bit, actually I was thinking a little bit last night because I was doing a little bit of my own uh, research for my own uh, kind of project. And uh, I'm looking at the world war one era. And so I was looking at the national defense act of 1916 and there's sort of discussions about, uh, for example, um, uh, putting uh, putting a rider in that bill to to have the government uh, take control of and own a nitrate plant for helping to uh, obviously make explosives and um, and so I that I sort of struck me as connected to your chapter a little bit and that there sort of seems to be periods where there's uh, there's sort of a an increased trend toward greater government control. 
And then maybe that's followed by or somehow related to a trend also towards greater privatization. And um, I, I sort of see both you know, almost in, in the story there. So um, could you maybe talk about that and why both uh, might be prevalent or important? I think that's right, Alex, and, and certainly true over the long run. We've seen both. You know, part of our argument is that there's been a, a discernible shift Oh, you know, in in one direction, in particular, since World War II, but of course, if you break it down and look at the micro level, there's a lot of complexity going on all the time. And Jennifer's work, um, uh, which I think we'll discuss eventually, ha- has shown that really nicely for the later 20th century. Um, but one thing that your question, I think. Um, suggests is, you know, we, we need to think about kind of the, the political um, side of this. And, and it is true, I think, as you're suggesting quite rightly, that there was something about, you know, there's something about kind of progressive and, and populist political moments where you might see even more interest in having the military perhaps avoid markets or or avoid contracting more than you might expect. And so, you know, certain legislators or even certain military officers themselves may be kind of suspicious of, you know, industrial corporations um, at certain moments in American political history uh, more than they might be at other times. So I think it's absolutely right. Yeah, there are there are a little bit, there's, there's some kind of cyclical action along with this, I think what we argue is this kind of key watershed moment um, in the Cold War as well. Absolutely. Um, so if we could uh, also talk about a few of the other chapters as well, um, I would, would you be able to maybe kind of uh, offer what insight you could on um, A. John Murphy's chapter about military housing in the Cold War era? And uh, I found it interesting, um, you know, using the term landlord um, and how the military became so robust at its its landlord efforts during the Cold War. Yeah, I'd love to talk about this chapter. Um, I, you know, I think what I love about the chapter is uh, having authored a book on the military and its function as a welfare state. Here we see another dimension to it that um, I did not cover in my book. And I'm really excited to learn about it. And it's, as you said, the, the role of the military, perhaps unexpected um, in creating a kind of really large uh, collection of housing across the country, really, and sometimes in other places uh, around the world, though Murphy focuses really on the U.S. And what's interesting about this is that it's, it allows us to, well, allows Murphy and for readers to see that there really is this public-private combination. You know, it, what the military is doing in this period is trying to see how fast it can get these much-needed uh, housing tracts built for its large Cold War and now married with families, military. And it's trying to do it by offering um, the work out to the private sector, finding, however, that there is criticism about windfall profits. There are poor contracts that um, sort of give too much to the private sector builders. And 
and then kind of bringing some of that back in house with the military taking over uh, the management of some of this. And in the process, it brings the military um, into a kind of really intimate involvement with the rest of what's going on in American society in the Cold War period, which is the building of these huge suburbs. Um, and so the military becomes part really of um, the kind of social reproduction is what Murphy calls it of American families and society in the Cold War by producing these suburbs and kind of bringing a suburban lifestyle into the U.S. military. I think for me, it, it's um, it's a great story of the public and private, but also the way that the military is trying to negotiate you know, racial integration, um, how it envisions nuclear families and how they should live. It's a really insightful chapter that I think could be used to anyone who's looking at urban history, post-war history, and of course, um, military history. And then another one of the chapters, uh, Sarah Jones Weeksill's uh, edition on Civil War consumer culture. Um, uh, as far as I remember, I think that might be the only one that is, is centered at least in the um, prior to the to the 20th century, um, which which also makes it you know, unique in and of itself. Um, could you uh, also maybe talk about that and how that fits into the rest of the discussion? This chapter. Yeah, let me talk uh, for a minute about that one, Alex. In part, I want to uh, talk because uh, that I got my own start thinking about these issues, um, thinking about the 19th century and the Civil War era. Um, so this is Sarah Weichsel's chapter, um, and she makes uh, incredible use of a set of papers of William and Nancy Willoughby. Um, and William was uh, a soldier with the, I think the, the Connecticut's 10th uh, Infantry Regiment in the Civil War. And, and he, with his unit, he was down um, fighting the Civil War in the Southeast. Um, but this is a story of entrepreneurship, entrepreneurship by uh, individual soldier and also by a kind of family unit because this married couple uh, worked together very closely to um, manage to sell all sorts of goods like clothing and writing instruments and, and paper uh, and other assorted goods to the soldiers in William's unit. So it's a, it's a story of a, you know, individual entrepreneur. Um, he's noticing that his fellow uh, soldiers want stuff that's not being provided by the army itself, by the sutlers who may be nearby um, selling things from their wagons, by the many nonprofit groups that aided the soldiers, like the, the Sanitary Commission and Christian Commission. Uh, William and his fellow kind of soldier entrepreneurs uh, saw a kind of niche for, for themselves in which they could make some money. Um, and what William did is he got Nancy to make and buy stuff back at home in Connecticut, ship it via express services to him, um, and sell it to his fellow soldiers. It's just kind of this fascinating um, story, and it fits with some of the other uh, chapters in our book where entrepreneurship by individuals is also kind of a big part of the story, like Patrick's Chung chapter on Dr. Kang and, and also certainly Kara Vuick's chapter on um, sex markets as well. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it 
a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Yeah, very, very interesting and amusing. Um, and that's a good segue into maybe talking about Kara Vuick's uh, chapter on military and prostitution. And I should say that's, <clears throat> excuse me, that's lumped, uh, I think, into the larger trajectory of your book where, again, it's 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 broadening the discussion. There's a chapter on race and, and benefits, um, you know, the, the chapter regarding Cold War military housing, you know, incorporates, uh, you know, gender norms um, in, into that, uh, that chapter as well and into the discussion. But Kara Dixon Vuick's chapter in Military and the Prostitution, that might seem surprising to some. So I'm curious if you could talk about how the military saw the market of sex work in the 20th century. Well, uh, Alex, I actually have a hard time believing that sex work in the military would actually yeah. come as a surprise to anyone who studies it. That's true. That's true. <laughs> or who's been in it. Um, but that aside, um, you're right that it's usually, I mean, it is not put front and center in discussions of the military and the market, much less in most kind of formal discussions about the military. So I think what, what, Karavuk is doing is recovering this area where we know there has been a tremendous amount of both labor and payment for the labor, uh, a market that we know has been um, regulated in various ways by the military and trying to bring it to light and understand it as an essential economic activity for militaries. Really, you know, we could probably say this for the world over and throughout time, but certainly for the U.S. military um, and the the 20th century. The military's treatment of it, she shows, has changed over time. Um, but it is clear that it always considered sex work as something essential that would be present um, and that it the essentialness was really about keeping up morale. It was almost like a, a consumer market um, for the morale of service personnel. And what she shows is that they played fairly direct roles um, in various times and places, both outside the U.S. and within the U.S., in regulating it over time, you know, all the way up through, I think, probably the most famous example um, which is in Hawaii during World War II, when he or she draws on the scholarship of of military historian Beth Bailey and her husband David Farber, and they show how the military, you know, set prices, <laughs> hours, all kinds of things uh, for the brothels uh, in in Honolulu at that time. But then, you know, um, Vuick shows how the period afterward uh, resulted in a kind of turning away from open regulation of sex work, sort of pressing it to the margins, even as it continued, and even as some what we might call soldier entrepreneurs, you know, leaders of various units, went ahead and had to regulate it during places and times when they were overseas, um, or even within the U.S., they kind of pressed it down to the unit level. Um, to to be handed in a way handled I think it, you know in a way it sort of turns into a kind of more I don't want to say a, a I mean it's more of a black market 
function. It's not as open, but it's still there and the regulation is still there. I think part of what Vuick is trying to say too is that, you know, there's real questions now about what's going on with sex work and the military. It's, you know, now so officially frowned upon, as I said, pushed to the side, um, but it's still occurring. And, you know, she ends with this most remarkable story um, here within the United States. Um, gosh, it's not at Fort Leonard Wood. I can't remember if it's there or it's at one of the posts in Texas where it turns out that, um, you know, that some officer in charge of training is actually uh, roping in his own female recruits into paid sex work. So it's a complicated story um, about the military and sex work, but I think such an important and common one that it's necessary to include it in a broad treatment of the military and the market. Absolutely. Absolutely. I wonder if we could uh, kind of digress a little bit from talking about the chapters and and maybe uh, just hear about the grueling process of of sort of compiling and uh, and and uh, and working on the project itself. So, how, how did you end up uh, uh, going through the the various papers that were submitted? And uh, was was there a conference that was held uh, initially to get this this project going? Uh- I'll start talking about it and Jennifer can add on. Uh, we never did a lot of these volumes, as Alex is suggesting, come out of conferences. And this one did not. Um, as we were suggesting earlier, you know, Jennifer and I um, met back in 2015. We wanted to find a way to collaborate. And then after she taught her war college course, we started to move in the direction of, of thinking about an edited volume, but we didn't do a conference, I suppose in part because we didn't, neither of us, as far as I know, didn't have access to, to, to huge amounts of money to do that. Um, and we wanted to move kind of fast, I think. And, and, um, and uh, wanted to kind of just get a move on with it. So we, brainstormed a lot and we also reached out to a lot of colleagues and we also did just a lot of cold new you know digging to try to figure out which scholars might be doing really interesting new work in in this area and we came up with long lists of possibilities and and tried to have a really diverse range of scholars and topics represented and then eventually you know the the nine chapters that we ended up with represent only a kind of a small set of what we were kind of thinking about in the beginning but I'll 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 let Jennifer jump in and and uh, add to that. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, it, this is one of those volumes that I think that doesn't represent the culmination of a kind of known field, but rather stakes out territory, uh, territories of work being done by scholars who themselves actually might not define them, you know, their work as military market scholarship, but that we, in kind of trying to pull together a sort of syllabus of what's happening now, saw as such. So some of our historians considered themselves, I think, like labor historians. Some of them thought of themselves as historians of, you know, the welfare state. Some people thought of themselves as historians of capitalism. Um, some of them thought of themselves as historians of U.S. and the world. And 
we sort of said to them, ah, we think you're historians of the military and the market in representative of the really interesting ways that people are defining markets and the military um, in in recent years. You know, would you like to have this conversation? And we were so lucky to get so many interesting people who said, you're right, I didn't think of myself necessarily that way. Um, yeah, how would that be? And it, what it did was make the editing process really enjoyable. Um, We were able to have great conversations with the individual authors as we sort of thought together about how we could make their empirical research, their original research sort of speak um, really directly to some of these questions. And, you know, I I think Mark would probably say the same thing. Um, It was pretty effortless in putting it together. I mean, even with the pandemic, uh, really the authors kind of miraculously didn't miss a beat in getting the work done. And, you know, everyone should be so lucky to write a book with Mark Wilson. I mean, like the essence of chill, um, but also able to get (laughs) everything done on time. We, We had already been working together writing. And so we had established a kind of no egos zone uh, where, you know, he could put up with my very uh, poorly written rough drafts and I wouldn't be offended when he corrected things and things like that. So we really just cut the work down the middle then once we had these amazing um, authors, passed it back and forth um, and and got it done. And, and we too were lucky to sort of have had that in place before the pandemic hit. So we kind of had these habits and structures of work to rely on that made it really smooth and enjoyable. Well, I'll just interject and say right back at you, Jennifer, because Jennifer's uh, such a joy to work with. And I think we we really benefited from kind of having similar sensibilities about, um, you know, getting stuff done promptly and, be, you know, providing constructive criticism to the authors and being flexible enough to work with them. So it was a real joy to work with Jennifer. And, and we did get it done pretty fast. And, and, you know, a lot of this, Alex, of course, was a lot of the um, certainly the revisions and the editing was done during the COVID crisis and that, that made things a little bit challenging, but um, we got it done and University of Pennsylvania Press and our acquisitions editor, Bob Lockhart, um, helped out a lot. So it turned out um, to, to be, as Jennifer suggested, maybe easier than we expected to pull it off. A, a few more questions I have uh, for you, just uh, um contextually with the book do you do you in particular with your chapter your collective chapter do you see concerning um you know sort of concerning markers with the cold war and post-cold war trends regarding privatization in the military um i I, i'll jump in on this though really mark you know he's working on a, a new project now that's bringing him right up to the present and you know, I think is probably one of the best experts we have now in the U.S. on this. So I can just sort of give my uh, slightly older and less informed take on it and then turn it over to Mark. But uh, yes, I do find um, concerning the growing privatization of the military. And when I was teaching that class, I actually found I, I, that many of the officers I was teaching found it a little bit concerning too. I think you know, the privatization of 
not really just, you know, weapons and materiel um, and and real estate, um, but also kind of every range of what the military defines as services, right? But that can mean everything from writing uh, reports to providing health care, to providing, um, you know, psychological care, to uh, recreation, right? It can mean a w- wide range of things when we talk about services, but the kind of full-scale um, outsourcing and privatization of this, I think, raises, for me, real questions about, what do I want to call it, responsibility, I guess, and capacity in an institution that is supposed to have real clear lines of responsibility and have a pretty robust capacity. So, you know, I, I think some of the questions that we talked about in class and that we we talk about here in the um, epilogues of the book is kind of like, what does it mean for an institution, you know, from my point of view, taking military services and welfare services into account, you know, what does it mean that an institution that that values uh, cohesion uh, and loyalty, um, taking care of its own to, to hand that work off to, to contractors, um, when it had been built up and in-house in the 70s and, and 1980s? Uh, what does it mean to tell families to be sort of self-reliant and figuring out um, how to call the private firm when they have a problem with flooding in their housing or mold or pollution um, on post? Um, what does it mean when a post commander herself or himself has to get in the helpline on the corporate queue to get an answer for a problem from a private corporation. I think, you know, there are real questions here about responsibility and military uh, effectiveness that are raised by privatization and outsourcing and, you know, questions that are not purely economic, but even to go to the economic, I say, I would say the part of the thing that I see as concerning is that from what I could tell, and I am not an expert in contracts, but also seemed like many of the contracts were, you know, for lack of a better way to put it, not good. Uh, they they favor private interests greatly, uh, often forcing the government to pay actually more than it should uh, over the long term and in various ways. And of course, they're quite devoid of democratic oversight. You know, they're, they're private and and it's not clear um, what's happening in some of these contracts and, and why. And so I think that too is a kind of citizen state democracy problem that is of no small concern. I'll just, I I think that's very well said by Jennifer. I'll just add a a handful of things. Maybe, um, you know, the, what do we have to contribute to this discussion as historians, you know, in particular, because of course so many people are interested in these issues who have a lot of experience and knowledge about it. And there's a lot of disagreement. I think Alex, as you probably would, would point out um, about whether the outsourcing is good or bad and about its costs and benefits. And of course it's a, you know, it's a complex situation and it's, it's not black and white. Of course, there still is some in-house capacity and there's always been contractors and so forth. So it is complicated and there's a lot of room for disagreement. I think the one of the things that, that Jennifer and I are suggesting as historians is that people in the present day who uh, may, you know, even mid-career officers, right, they may have been born in the 1980s, right, um, if they can kind of... Um, open their eyes to past practices, they might actually be surprised that what today seems like um, just 
obvious uh, facts or um, indisputable um, ways of thinking about government and business, for example. In fact, uh, at certain points in the past, those things have not been understood as so obvious. And I think so uh, just as a you know, this volume is largely a volume offered by historians. And I think, you know, as historians, we don't, sometimes we don't have much to say to the military, but in this case, I think we really do. And as Jennifer put it so well, it's really important for the military to kind of step back and maybe denaturalize some of their practices and some of their ways of thinking when it comes to the military and the market. Yeah, and I, I wonder as well, even though, um, you know, as historians, you, know, you mean, uh, sometimes it's, uh, you know, not, it's, it might be a little concerning sometimes to start thinking about the future and what that might hold. Um, but do you see any, again, we talk a lot about trends of uh, the military and the market uh, over the course of the conversation. Um, do you see any trends for the military and the market uh, in the future, are there are there mechanisms in place uh, to help maybe adapt or adjust from the current state of relations between the military and the market? You know, I think Mark might be the best person to answer this, but I would just almost take your question, Alex, and just remind us of Dan Worles's chapter in our book, which which underscores the point that it's not just the military that has undergone since World War II um, and really important and significant privatization and outsourcing. But in fact, quite a lot of what Dan Worles calls the the national security contracting complex, right, that includes, you know, new things that weren't in you know, around after World War II, like the Department of Homeland Security, right? But Department of Energy, uh, NASA, right? All this process of of privatization has occurred across government sectors, broadly in national security, and of course, even beyond um, national security. So your question is really important about what the future might hold, because it's something that's important for the military and also the kind of entire spectrum of of government function but mark knows <laughs> mark maybe knows more with his uh with his current research about thinking about whether or not this is a a trend that sort of feels inevitable or whether or not you know what our history is telling us is like certain things could happen to call into question the kind of current regime um that we see in in outsourcing in the military yeah, though, Alex, as, as Jennifer and I start to talk about, and even in the conclusion to the book, which we wrote a little while ago, um, even some kind of recent developments like the COVID crisis and the, the obsession in Washington today of thinking about China as a great power rival, for example, um, some of those things have, I think, led to some... Um, questioning of current practices. Um, I think, and I think Jennifer and I agree on this, it's, it, you know, it's hard to imagine a radical departure from the current enthusiasm for um, contracting in the near term. It just seems like the accumulation of institutions and practices and habits and ways of thinking 
that have um, grown up over the last few decades is quite powerful. So it, it's um, hard for to imagine a kind of radical departure from that across the board. But certainly in, in, in specific areas, you know, there may be um, um, important changes in the short term. And then, of course, as you know, Alex, as a student of history, I mean, we never are able to anticipate the next giant crisis, but we know one may come. And so it, it is possible to imagine like a major military defeat for the United States or some other, you know, immense um, development that we can't anticipate, but that could well happen there. You know, at, at those kind of moments in time, you can get revolutionary change, right? And we know that from our study of 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 the past so one never knows but i think jennifer and i agree in the short term barring some massive new crisis we're still more or less in the moment that we described uh in our chapter well you both have certainly given myself and uh, i'm sure the readers a lot to think about uh as well as all the contributors of the of the edited volume that we've been talking about um I, I will commit the great sin of, of asking uh, as a final question if there are uh, for, for, uh, for authors who have just finished and just recently published an edited volume, uh, if you also have any other projects that are in the works that you'd like to discuss. And I know uh, we've alluded to Mark's uh, current work or that he's, that he's working on as well, uh, but would you like to provide some information about those? Well, I'll go first because uh, my current project doesn't have anything to do with the military and the market, which is a surprise to me. It's a it's a look at uh, grassroots involvement in U.S. foreign policy on the right. And actually, when I began it, um, I, I was starting sort of with a history I knew fairly well, which was uh, the Contra War, and I thought there would be more military and market involvement. But as so often happens with history, I now found myself back in the time of World War One, with a whole different cast of characters. And I would say I'm as much in the realm of religious and cultural history, uh, more there than uh, military markets and society. But Mark is, um, you know, hard at work on what I think of as probably the, you know, most in, important long-term project on the military and the market that's in the works right now. So um, I'll hand it over to Mark. Um, well, I've been uh, working for a, a few years now and trying to find a way to write a book about the history of the the U.S. military industrial complex, you know, or another way of putting it, the, the kind of history of business and politics in the U.S. defense sector um, from the 1950s to the present. So for me, that's a big challenge because there's a big chunk of time, whereas in my earlier works, I, I focused on more specific wars. Um, but it's been a great, um, rewarding challenge for me. Um, I've got the benefit of a generous grant from the Carnegie Corporation of New York this year and next year to to help me make some progress on it. Um, and so I'm hoping I can offer up a one-volume history of the military-industrial complex. I think there's room for, for something there, Alex. You may, I don't know if you agree, but uh, the military-industrial complex is a subject that tends to generate a lot of extreme, um, you know, emotion on one side or another. 
Um, and we've got a lot of incredible work, you know, on different parts of it. And we've got a lot of enthusiastic work by various people. But I think there's still room to kind of offer a broad, uh, a broad new history that it would offer maybe a new, new way of thinking about it. So that's my, that's my effort right now. Well, both of those projects sound fantastic, and uh, we would love to have you back on the New Books Network to discuss them uh, once they are complete. Uh, Well, this has been a pleasure and a delight uh, for both uh, Jennifer and Mark to have both of you on here discussing the edited volume of The Military and the Market, um, University of Pennsylvania Press, 2022, just released this fall. And thank you very much for your time and the wonderful discussion and and insights. Thank you, Alex. Thank you, Alex. We really enjoyed it.